worshipers here this morning. I have the privilege of participating in this service by reading scripture and saying a prayer. I'd like to read out of Isaiah, the first chapter, verses 27 through 31. Zion will be redeemed by justice, those who repent by righteousness. At the same time, both rebels and sinners will be broken. And those who abandon the Lord will perish. Indeed, they will be ashamed of the sacred trees you desired. And you will be embarrassed because of the garden shrines you have chosen. For you will become like an oak whose leaves are withered, and like a garden without water. The strong one will become tender and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to extinguish the flames. Let's pray. God in heaven, you surely are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, you're also just and righteous. And Lord, one day you will judge the world. And those that have rebelled against you will be punished. But Lord, you're loving and merciful. And you sent your son Jesus. Lord, that those that put our trust in him will be with you forever and ever. And Lord, now I ask that you be with Pastor Daniel. Let him be your man this morning. Let him be filled with your spirit and guided by your spirit as he takes your book and delivers your message to encourage your people. Again, I thank you for Jesus and what he's done for us. In his name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Freddie. You may be seated. In the long-standing tradition of sermons that I get to preach, this is kind of a bummer passage. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a visitor with us this morning, you came in at a very difficult time in the text. Um, so bear, st- stick it out. I promise it gets better. But in January of 1933, a 42-year-old Aus- Austrian-born politician ascended to the office of chancellor in Germany at the head of the National Socialist German Workers' Party. He rose to this office on the wings of his cunning and his oratory skills. You see, he had convinced the German people that they were being systemically disenfranchised by the restrictions placed on them at the Treaty of Versailles. And that their national purity and their their home soil was being polluted by the existence of the Jews. He won the German people with a story of revitalization, of national honor and purity that would usher in a period of economic and social prosperity that Germany had never known. And within eight months, he had established himself as a dictator taking control of the army, dissolving any social or political institutions that could oppose him. And by 1945, the entire world had become a battlefield. Much of Europe and most of Germany lay in complete ruin. Somewhere between 35 million and 60 million people had died 4.2 million of those, the very Germans who had bought into the narrative of Adolf Hitler. 
Germans who had at one point seen him as the savior of Germany. Listen, many in 1933 thought that they were getting the thing that they wanted. The thing that was best for them, a strong and inspiring leader who would lead them into an age of prosperity. But in the end, he delivered to them a feast of bitter destruction and death. And in our society today, we continually elect leaders and pursue policies that have led to the destruction of our mental health and our physical health, fractured our sense of national unity and purpose, proliferated cronyism, and facilitated the slaughter of 60 million preborn children and is advocating for the mutilation of many more. And we're going to see from our text that this is not a new phenomenon. When given the option between obedience to God or the pursuit of ungodly self-interest, humanity regularly pursues the self-interest. When presented a new cultural or political savior which promises to, to rescue us, we empower them to do things which ultimately prove evil and destructive. And then, as surely as night follows day, we reap the harvest of what we have sown. I promise I'm not a bummer in real life. Come talk to me afterwards. <laughs> we have been reading in Judges the repeating story of the people of Israel. A people who time and again go after unrighteous things that they think will bring them prosperity or abundance or blessing all while suppressing the truth of God in their unrighteousness. And time and again, God disciplines them disciplines them for their rebellion, then rescues them. Rescues them from the consequence of their rebellion. And in His mercy, He raises up earthly deliverers to lead them out of oppression and correct their iniquity. But the story of Abimelech, here in Judges chapter 9, is a different story. The main point of this story is that Abimelech illustrates what happens when God gives a person and a people over to their godlessness. Abimelech illustrates what happens when God gives a person and a people over to their ungodliness. Last week, Pastor Ryan wrapped up a three-week study of Gideon, the flawed man of faith, who both delivered his people and destroyed his people, who, both fought, who fought for their faithfulness but also facilitated their idolatry. And although on the surface it seems Gideon passed the test of pride when offered a kingdom, the implications of the last section of Judges 8 and the opening section of Judges 9 indicate that he adopted, at least adopted, the heart attitude of a king. Even naming his illegitimate son Abimelech, my father is king. In chapter 9, it's implied that his 70 sons were in some way ruling over the people of Israel. So he was acting like a king, whether or not he identified publicly as one. And upon his death, the nation throws itself wholeheartedly back into the worship of Baal. Gideon had not trained his people in righteousness. He had merely restrained their evil. 
Then the text, the transition from calling him Gideon to using his Canaanite name, Jerubal, coupled with the people's enthusiastic return to Baal worship, indicates that the culture had become fully Canaanized. Canaan was supposed to become the promised land of Israel, and Israel had been taken over by Canaan. Which brings us to our passage and our first point. What happens when God gives a people, a culture and its leaders, over to their sinful pursuits? Well, ungodly cultures produce profane and wicked rulers. Ungodly cultures produce profane and wicked rulers. Read with me the first six verses of Judges chapter 9. It says, Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem and spoke to his uncles, to his mother's whole clan, saying, please, speak in the hearing of all the citizens of Shechem, all the, the important people of Shechem, all the lords of Shechem. Is it better for you that 70 men, all the sons of Jeroboam, rule over you, or that one man rule over you? Remember that I am your own flesh and blood. His mother's relatives spoke all of these words about him in the hearing of the citizens of Shechem, and they were favorable to Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. So they gave him 70 pieces of silver from the temple of baal Berit. Abimelech used it to hire worthless and reckless men, and they followed him. And he went to his father's house in Ophrah and killed his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, on top of a large stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, survived because he hid. Then all the citizens of Shechem and of Beth Milo gathered together and proceeded to make Abimelech king at the oak, the pillar, in Shechem. Ungodly cultures produce profane and wicked rulers. And Gideon's son Abimelech is the paradigm of this. We're going to see that Abimelech is both cunning and ruthlessly ambitious. And he's filled with a predilection towards violence. And like many politicians through the ages, he rises to power by inflaming the embers of dissatisfaction among the elites. And notice he does it with such subtlety and cunning. He never comes right out and makes the appeal to be king. He politics. He leverages his relationships on his mother's side to start to spread his campaign message among the elites of Shechem. And his message is very simple and very appealing. But it smacks of the serpent in the garden whose questions were offered in order to confuse reality. Isn't it better that you would be ruled by a family member from your very own town, your very own clan? Isn't the rule of Gideon's 70 sons oppressive and confusing? Wouldn't it just be better if I, your own flesh and blood, ruled you? It reminds me of the campaign commercials where politicians are trying to convince you that they're just an aw shucks, down-home American boy with hometown values and wisdom just like yours who's going to go up to big bad Washington, D.C. and make some changes on your behalf. But these questions lead the hearers to ignore the fact that God said he would pick the king. That God would establish their ruler. 
And those who are in power in Shechem hear the question and think, yeah, yes, that sounds great. Abimelech is a hometown boy. He's got some good connections. He's somebody we're already close to. He's someone we can more directly influence, someone who can help us enlarge our own claims and interests. And so the lords of Shechem, literally the bales of Shechem, take money from the temple of the demon god Baal in order to fund Abimelech's campaign. Now, this isn't just where they were banking their money. This is, there's a demonic element to what is happening here. They're pulling resources out of the treasury of Baal as a picture of Baal's resourcing and empowering of Abimelech. And this sinister undertone is confirmed by what Abimelech does with the money. The text says he hires worthless and reckless men. The Hebrew here paints a picture of empty vessels, devoid of anything noble or virtuous, who are frothing, who are boiling over with pride. He hires men committed to wickedness to be his bureaucracy, to be his cabinet. And proof of their demonic empowerment is found in what they do next. They travel to the city of Ophrah. They travel to, the, to his father's house. And they don't just murder his 70 stepbrothers. They sacrifice them on a stone altar. The destruction of the house of God's servant Gideon is financed by the house of the demon god Baal whose these brothers are being sacrificed to. And upon his return to Shechem, this demonic perversion of righteousness continues as the ruling elite make Abimelech king at the oak in Shechem. This oak features prominently in the story of Israel. It's the same oak that Abraham was brought to and told of God's promised land. The same oak where Jacob buried all of the household idols as an act of purification. It's the same oak that Joshua led the people to set up these giant covenant stones in remembrance of of being faithful to the covenant. And here at this oak, a false king is raised up. At this place of solemn remembrance of their true ruler Yahweh and His gracious covenant with them, Here, Abimelech is coronated in defiance of God and His law while the blood and stench of pagan sacrifice is still upon him. God was to to appoint the inevitable king over Israel, not the Baals of Shechem. The king was to come from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Manasseh. Because you see, Abimelech is an antichrist. He's committed to injustice, to violence, and the perversion of true religion. And don't we frequently see the same thing today? Who is regularly voted into office? Politicians who are devoted to agendas that are committed to the expulsion of God or anything biblically virtuous from every part of public life. And they're backed by huge amounts of money from the ruling elite. Hiring and appointing those who are devoid of virtue to every level of their administration. Hashtag not all politicians, but most of them. (laughs) 
And they do all this while using the language and the residual cultural pathos of Christendom, of Christianity to justify it. Child murder and mutilation is couched in terms of individual rights and access to health care. Medically facilitated suicide is wrapped in the language of human dignity. Exploitation of workers and the environment is represented as obedience to the command to subdue the earth. Perversion and promiscuity is promoted as love and blessing. Rebellion against God and his order is represented as obedience to nature or liberation. And then these people, with unrighteous and ungodly ideologies, place their hand upon a sacred text as an invocation of God's blessing And they go on to institutionalize that which is evil and eradicate that which is good. They make the sacred profane and they exchange righteousness for wickedness. And then they replicate. Hiring worthless and reckless men and women to administrate it all. Ungodly cultures produce profane and wicked rulers. We don't Get a choice about that. May God have mercy upon us. But to make matters worse, when God gives a people over to its sin, we see that ungodly cultures reject righteous warnings. Ungodly cultures reject righteous warnings. In His mercy, God uses the youngest of Gideon's son, this victim of this horrible crime, the one who escaped to give them a chance to turn away from their wickedness. Read with me, starting in verse 7, it says, when, when they told Jotham, he climbed to the top of Mount Gerizim. That's important. He raised his voice and he called to them, listen to me, citizens of Shechem, and may God listen to you. The trees decided to anoint a king over themselves. They said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree tree said to them, should I stop giving my oil that people use to honor both God and men and rule over the trees? So then, the tree said to the fig tree, come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, should I stop giving my sweetness and my good fruit, and rule over trees? Later, the trees said to the grapevine, come and reign over us. But the grapevine said to them, should I stop giving my wine that cheers both God and man to rule over the trees? So finally, all the trees said to the bramble, come, reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, If you really are anointing me as king over you, come and find refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out of the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Jotham begins to address them directly instead of in a parable. He says, now, if you have acted faithfully and honestly in making Abimelech king, if you have done well by Jerubal and his family, if you have rewarded him appropriately for what he did, which they have not, for my father fought for you, 
He risked his life and rescued you from Midian, and now you have attacked my father's family today, killed his 70 sons on top of a large stone, and made Abimelech, the son of his slave woman, king over the citizens of Shechem because he is your brother. So if you have acted faithfully and honestly with Jeroboam and his house this day, rejoice in Abimelech. And may Abimelech rejoice in you. But if not, may fire come from Abimelech and consume the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And may fire come from the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo and consume Abimelech. And then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and lived there because of his brother Abimelech. Ungodly cultures reject righteous warnings. This lone survivor, Jotham, whose name means the Lord is perfect, takes a risk and he stands up on Mount Gerizim to proclaim a warning to the people. Interestingly, Jotham does not direct this warning at Abimelech. Even though Abimelech and his henchmen have murdered 69 of his family members, he does not take a particularly condemning tone towards Abimelech. No, he is calling out the responsibility of the people who put Abimelech in that position of power. Now, God will hold Abimelech accountable for his wickedness. We will see that. But it is to the trees. It's to the lords of Shechem that this warning is issued. You see, they were seeking to be ruled. Just not by the rule of Yahweh. Not by the rule of the one whom Yahweh would choose for them. No, they wanted the benefit of a strong leader of their own choosing. They desired to exercise God's prerogative. And so they went to the olive tree, the wealthy one that produces things that honor both God and man. But the olive tree declines them because the olive tree is obeying God and being fruitful. So they go to the fig tree, the wise one that provides security and allows people to enrich their lives. But the fig tree declines because it is already obeying God and being fruitful. So they go to the grapevine, the encouraging one that brings forth things that please God and man. But the vine declines because it's already obeying God and being fruitful. So, in their unwillingness to be ruled by the creator of the olive tree, the creator of the fig tree, the creator of the grapevine, they turn to something fruitless. They turn to the bramble. And the bramble is more than happy to rule over the trees, to assume a position of power and authority. The bramble says, yes, come, take refuge in my shade. <laughs> Not to press the analogy, but what is the only way to get shade from a low-lying bramble bush? To lie on the ground, to be brought all the way down to the dust. And the bramble says, you do this. You come down or I will burn the cedars of Lebanon. 
Unless you scrape in the dust before me, I will consume and destroy everyone and everything that is noble and good. And don't we see this today? The people who should be candidates for positions of power are often too busy doing what is good in the sight of God. And the people who should never be moved into positions of power are all too happy to provide shade from their moral bankruptcy. There are faithful and godly people in this congregation who I personally have encouraged to run for mayor who have declined for the same reason as the olive tree, the fig tree, and the grapevine. But we all have seen and experienced the destructive consequences and groaning that comes when, uh, that follows when fruitless leaders are raised up. So Jotham stands on Mount Gerizim. This is the mountain from which God's blessings for covenant faithfulness were declared in Deuteronomy 27. He stands on Mount Gerizim and he warns the citizens of Shechem of their unfaithfulness. It is a picture of God's merciful warning against disobedience. Jotham appeals to the mercy that God has shown them in their deliverance by Gideon. He appeals to the debt of gratitude that, God, that is owed to both God and Gideon. He stands on the mount of God's covenant blessing and he appeals to them. It is a call to repentance, to turn away from the path of destruction. Because if they do not fire will consume them. They will be destroyed. And what a merciful and gracious act by Jotham and by God. But it is clearly rejected. Jotham has to flee to escape Abimelech and his people. They do not heed Jotham's warning. They do not turn from their ungrateful faithlessness. They do not call out to or submit to Yahweh, which leaves only one outcome. When a people are given over to their sin, it is inevitable that ungodly cultures will experience the wrath of God. Ungodly cultures will experience the wrath of God. Read with me in verse 22. It says, When Abimelech had ruled over Israel three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. They treated Abimelech deceitfully so that the crime against the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come to justice and their blood would be avenged on, the, on their brother Abimelech who killed them and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him kill his brothers. Ungodly cultures will experience the wrath of God. The story gets even more brutal than it already has been. Remember, the actors in this story have chosen to commit themselves to wrongdoing, to worship the, the to, sorry, commit themselves to the defiance of God and his law and his covenant, to worship the demon god Baal and raise up a demonically empowered ruler. They have devoted themselves to evil. So God demonstrates his sovereignty and his justice by giving them exactly what they have devoted themselves to. 
he sends an evil spirit to orchestrate the destruction of these guilty parties. I'm going to summarize the narrative found in verses 25 through 55, but I suggest you go home and you read it to ensure that what I'm telling you is true. An evil spirit stirs up strife between the elite of Shechem and the false king Abimelech. The elites begin to sabotage the regional economy in an attempt to undermine Abimelech, to step out from under his shade. Going so far as to back another leader, a man named Gaul. Now, in what should be a totally unsurprising twist, the name Gaul means something loathsome. This ungodly culture raises up another leader. He raises up something loathsome to be their ruler. Now, they don't take him to the oak and make him king, but they do throw a raging party for him during the course of which one of Abimelech's henchmen sends a message to Abimelech to come and deal with Gaul. So Abimelech, like any good tyrant, marches on the city in the morning, defeating Gaul's forces and driving him out. Not so unexpected, right? But thinking that this Gaul business is now all settled, the common people of Shechem head out into the fields the next day to do their labor and probably clean up the battlefield. And it's here that Abimelech's evil and unkingliness is magnified. Where Gideon had set upon the enemy, the Midianites, with three companies of soldiers, Abimelech sets upon his own people, the common people with three companies of soldiers. Blocking the gates of the city, he prevents the common folk from being able to retreat, and he spends the entire day slaughtering them. And when he is done killing them, he sows the land with salt in utter contempt for the people, the land, and the God who had given them the land. The people left within the cities, the elites, are justifiably terrified. So they gather for safety in this stronghold of the temple of Baal, the same temple whose treasury had funded the rise of Abimelech. And upon hearing that they did this, in a move filled with theological implications, Abimelech goes up to a place called Mount Zalman, which is likely the Canaanite name for Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal is the mountain from which the curses for breaking the covenant were declared in Deuteronomy 27. And he cuts down the branches of the trees there. He carries them to the city. He lays them against the stronghold of Baal and he burns it to the ground with about a thousand men and women inside. Don't miss this. These people who had rebelled against God and broken and perverted the covenant, were consumed by a fire started by the king they had raised up. And it was fueled by the trees on the mountain from which God's curses for covenant breaking were pronounced. All while they sought refuge in the house of their false god. Brothers and sisters, this is the wrath of God being poured out on the people of Shechem. He is giving them exactly what they sought after. Because this is the end result of following false kings. 
the end result of following false saviors and false gods, they will turn on you and become the agent of your destruction. But lest you think God is unfair in punishing just the ungodly culture, we will see that God deals with the wicked and profane ruler. After burning the stronghold at Shechem, Abimelech moves on to attack a nearby city called Thebes or Thebes or nobody knows how to pronounce this stuff. They just say it confidently and they look smart. <laughs> but whether he attacks this city from bloodlust or because they too had entertained Gaul's rebellion is unknown. But as was the custom, the people of the city went and hid within their city stronghold and climbed onto the roof. And as Abimelech approached this stronghold to burn it down, a woman threw part of a millstone and it hit him in the head, crushing his skull. Do not miss the theological implications of this. This is the language of Genesis 3 in which God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Abimelech is an antichrist. He's an anti-deliverer, an anti-judge, an anti-king. He's in league with and under the power of demonic influence. He's like the serpent. He is intent upon people's destruction. And here a woman takes an instrument of fruitfulness and crushes the head of the seed of the serpent. Then in his pride and foolishness, Abimelech calls out for his armor bearer to come and kill him so that he doesn't die at the hand of a woman. But we all know what happened. <laughs> and so we read in verses 56 and 57, in this way, God... God in his sovereignty over all the affairs of men and angels and demons. In this way, God brought back Abimelech's evil. Brought it back upon his own head. The evil that Abimelech had done to his father and then killed his, when he killed his 70 brothers. And God also brought back to the men of Shechem all their evil. So the curse of Jotham's, Jotham's son of Jer... There's a lot of J's here. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubal, came upon them. Brothers and sisters, if they do not repent, ungodly cultures and their leaders will experience the wrath of God. Bummer of a message. So what do we do with this story? What do we do with this story? Will we allow it to warn us this morning. Let us be warned. Let us be exhorted to the following things. Be warned. Any Savior other than Christ will destroy you. Any king, any Savior, any idol that you set up for yourself in defiance of the true Messiah will ultimately turn on you and destroy you. When you look to money or pornography or food or sexual expression or temples or the new age or political philosophies or drugs or surgery or presidential candidates, even geographic locations to be your savior from perceived oppression, to be your hope for happiness, to be your sovereign guide, God will do the worst thing you can imagine. He'll do the worst thing you, you, you can imagine. 
and give you over to those things. Give you over to your addictions. Give you over to your toxic relationships. Give you over to your demon gods. Give you over to reckless and worthless men and women. Romans 1 makes it clear that God will give you over to the sin that you long for. And you will inherit the just consequences of it. But God... God stands on the mountain of blessing, calling out warnings to you, calling out repent and believe the gospel. Jesus, the second person of the triune God, says, come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden with yokes and bondages of sin, you suffering under the wicked and profane leaders that you yourself chose. Come to me and I will give you rest. I will free you from the bondage of sin. Come to me, you who are facing the specter of righteous judgment and be given a righteousness that is not your own. In Isaiah, God says, come. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And and you without silver, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk and silver without cost. Why do you spend your money on that which is not sustaining and your wages on that which does not satisfy? Pay attention to me. Come, listen so that you will live. He says, come, do not pursue that which will destroy you and starve you and sow your land with salt. Heed this warning. Respond to this invitation and come to Christ. Throw yourself upon His mercy and His goodness for He is the true King. And be warned, there is no neutrality. There is no neutrality in this life. Many in the public arena will attempt to exclude God and the things of God from the public sphere, claiming that the Public square should be neutral when it comes to that kind of thing. But brothers and sisters, there is nowhere in Scripture where it says that Jesus is merely the king of your own personal values and spiritual journey. He's the king of those things, but he's not limited to those things. All things are under Christ's sovereign rule, from the laws of physics to the laws of men, from your personal devotion to your public vocation. From the courts of heaven to the mayor's office and the governor's office and the Oval Office. And in the same way that it was vain imagination that Abimelech was the true king, it's vain imagination that the public square is somehow neutral when it comes to God. There is no neutrality. The war against the spiritual powers and principalities, the war against the serpent in the heavenly places is playing out in the earth, in the public square as much as in the private. The Scriptures paint a picture. People are either for Christ or against Him. Cultures are either for Christ or against Him. Rulers are either for Christ or against Him. And in the end, all will bow before Christ either from the grace that they have been given or because he shattered them like pottery. And so we must stand like Jotham, making merciful public proclamations, public warnings to those who are raising up Abimelechs, 
those staggering towards slaughter, those walking the road to death, though they may hate us or want us dead. And be warned, our methods must not be carnal. Our methods must not be carnal. We will be tempted in walking a world that is not neutral towards the true king to operate as the world does. Tempted to raise up our own Abimelechs to fight the Abimelechs of culture. Tempted to revile the people who oppose us and try to slay them on an altar. Tempted to subdue and salt the earth of those who fight against us. But that is not what we are called to. That is not what we are called to. In 2 Corinthians, Paul assures us that though we are in a battle on all sides, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not the same weapons that the world uses. We have been given the arsenal of faithfulness. Regular and faithful intercessory prayer and worship and sacrificial service. Faithful families raised to love the call to holiness and the command to disciple the nations. Faithfulness in and to a local church, the local expression of the house and stronghold of God. Faithful and unceasing gratitude and remembrance of what Christ has done for us. And faithful love for our enemies. And faithful prayer for those who persecute. Faithful forgiveness of others, even as Christ forgives us. Faithfulness to take up and wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of Christ, not vain deceits rooted in the tradition of men or empty philosophies based on the elements of the world. We faithfully preach that Word and the Gospel it contains. And we do it in the power of the Spirit, believing that God can raise dead people from the grave. Believing it is the means by which God has ordained the world to be transformed. We faithfully preach until death comes to usher us into the presence of God. And we remain faithful to the God of the new covenant who is so faithful to us. We will be tempted to raise up or follow Abimelechs, false kings who walk in the way of the serpent. But we must only pledge our allegiance, only pledge our lives to the true king, to Christ. Because where Abimelech is an antichrist, Christ is an anti-Abimelech. Where false kings are vicious, Christ is humane. Where false kings are cruel, Christ is kind. Where false kings are brutal, Christ is gentle. Where false kings are proud, Christ is humble and lowly. Where false kings are violent, Christ is peaceful. Where false kings are malevolent, Christ is merciful. And where false kings construct empires for their own benefit, Christ builds a kingdom for the glory of God and the good of his people. And where false kings exact vengeance, 
upon any who rebel by putting them to the sword. Christ takes upon himself the iniquity of the rebels. And he bears it to a cross. And he dies there with the assurance of the rebels' pardon upon his lips. Bow your hearts to this king today, I urge you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back back up. And as we close, allow the words of this 17th century hymn to reinvigorate your commitment to Christ this morning. When we are tempted to follow ungodly leaders in ungodly pursuits, when we're tempted to raise up Abimelechs, when we're tempted to wield the ring of power, may we ever declare in our souls this, now I will cling forever to Christ my Savior dear. My Lord will leave me never, and with him I need not fear. He rends death's iron chain. He breaks through sin and pain. He shatters hell's dark thrall, and I follow him through all. Will you pray with me? God, our King, we bow our hearts and bend our knees before you and you alone. Truly, there is no king, no savior, no judge, no ruler like you. Your grace and your mercy is beyond description. You have not dealt with us as our sins deserve, nor repaid us according to our iniquities, but you have demonstrated your compassionate love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And Lord, we confess that our hearts are prone to raise up Abimelechs, to raise up idols of comfort or success or carnal pleasure. Crush our idols, Lord. Rescue us from covetousness. Give us a spirit of repentance. And we pray for our nation and our culture and our leaders, Lord that in your mercy you would send revival to our land and we would turn away from the deeds of darkness we are so committed to. Forgive us for scorning our fathers and mothers. Forgive us for sacrificing our children. Forgive us for our envy and our greed. And forgive us for proactively tearing out any vestige of you, of your law, of your gospel, your kingship from the public square. Revive us, we pray, Lord. Amen.